following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So the very deepest part of the ocean is in a trench in the Pacific. This is of any ocean around the world. The deepest place is in a trench in the Pacific, and they call this part of the trench Challenger Deep. And this particular, it goes so deep, it goes uh, almost seven miles beneath the surface of the ocean. Now, to kind of put that in perspective, we talked about last week Mount Everest, the tallest mountain uh, above sea level of any mountain peak in, on our planet. And that goes about five and a half, almost five and a half miles above sea level. So imagine, if you're just trying to understand how deep this part of the ocean is, imagine you go as deep as the Mount Everest is high, you go that deep, plus another 25% or so of Mount Everest, and you're starting to get to how deep this part of the ocean is. So we talked about how Mount Everest is almost 9,000 meters tall, this part of the ocean is almost 11,000 meters deep. Okay, now I can tell you those statistics, and if you're a science nerd, you're like, okay, that's kind of interesting. I like to hear new things about our planet or be reminded of things I knew. That, that's kind of interesting. But there's a whole nother reaction we have, like there's a whole nother realm with information like that, when we bring it home and we make it personal. So what would it be like if you went down to the bottom of that trench, Challenger Deep, we're almost seven miles beneath the surface of the ocean. What would that be like for you? Well, let me just start by putting this in perspective. The deepest dive in the history of man that's recorded, according to Guinness Book of World Records, is something like 325 meters. Now, if you're a diver, you know that that's almost hard to believe. That's over 1,000 feet under the surface of, of the water. That is absolutely remarkable, about 325 meters. But remember, this is almost 11,000 meters. So, and you know, you probably know, even if you're not a diver, the deeper you go into the water, the more the weight of the water around you creates pressure all the way around on every square inch of your body. And the deeper you go, the heavier, heavier, the more and more pressure is trying to push in on your body. So what is it like almost seven miles down underwater. Well, to illustrate that, I want to show you this picture. Check out this picture. Um, that is, of course, what? The Eiffel Tower. You can see at the bottom all the tiny little people under the Eiffel Tower. Can you see those little people there where, where you're sitting? Okay, they're very, very small. That gives you an idea of how big that structure is. It's, hum it's humongous. Okay, so I want, you to stand, I want you to imagine you're standing where those people are, and you're standing there like this, okay? And you're wearing flip-flops. This is essential for how this illustration is going, okay? Imagine your flip-flops. Look down. You see your flip-flops. You're standing there, okay? Now I want you to imagine the largest crane mankind has ever built. They build it especially for this experiment. Comes rolling up, attaches itself to the Eiffel Tower, and then starts rocking the tower back and forth until it breaks it loose it lifts the entire Eiffel Tower up and then slowly, slowly, slowly rotates it till the pointy part is pointing down. Okay, you, you tracking with me? 
Now you're standing there with your flip-flops, and they slowly lower the pointy part of the Eiffel Tower onto your big toe and let it rest there. Are you imagining this? That would be uncomfortable. Can we agree on that? It's uncomfortable, yes? Okay. If you're imagining your big toe is one square inch, that would be roughly the amount of pressure, the Eiffel Tower on your toe would be the amount of pressure on your entire body, every square inch of your body, if you are down at the bottom of Challenger Deep, almost seven miles under the surface of the water. Now maybe you have a different level of appreciation for how deep that trench goes. I can tell you just the statistics, like the raw attributes of how deep the ocean is, but there's a different level of understanding we get when we bring it like home and understand how that would intersect with you personally. Here's what we're looking at. We're looking at this part of the Bible in Psalms. It's Psalm 139. It's one of the most brilliant passages of Scripture because here's what it does. It teaches us some of these amazing attributes of God some of the biggest, hardest to grasp attributes, like it's hard to fit into our brains, some of these humongous attributes. But it doesn't just teach us this as like stale theological doctrines like in a vacuum. It doesn't just give you these theological truths, these truths about God. It takes these principles and teaches it to you in such a way where it shows you how that intersects with your life and why it matters. And here's what we learn from this chapter in the Bible, which is why we're kind of pouring over it for a couple weeks. What we learn is that the biggest things that are going on in our life, the things that you're worrying, thinking about, obsessing about, processing through the most, deep down what's happening is you're colliding with what you believe about God. You may not think about it in, that term, in those terms, and you probably don't. You might think of, well, I think about God over here, and then here's my real life. What this is showing us is what you think about God plays out every single day in the things that matter to you and are consuming you the most. Let me show you how this works. We're looking at Psalm 139, and we're going to start this section at verse 7. If you, look at, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, open to Psalm 139, verse 7. Let's take a look at it. I'm going to read straight through this section, then we'll go back and kind of pick it apart a little bit. Look at this, Psalm 139, 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? This is the famous King David talking. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning... And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Now I don't know if you got the general gist. This section of the psalm is hammering away at a particular attribute of God. It's talking about God is ever-present. God's presence is everywhere. 
And I want you to look how he frames this up. Verse 7 again, look what he says. We'll start here. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? This first part starts with a question of could I get away from your presence if I wanted to? Hypothetically, could I get away from your presence? Have you ever seen one of those uh, old movies and there's some kind of chase that's about to happen? Maybe it's like an Old West, old west movie. And there's some kind of conflict that happens into, in a saloon. And one guy goes running out of the saloon and he runs out into the dust street and he gets on his horse and he's trying to escape and he just goes galloping away on his horse. And some angry guy, he's like the sheriff, he comes out with his guns and his cowboy hats and he yells as the guy's running away, you can run, but you can't, but you can't hide. The guy's galloping away and he says, you might be leaving now, you might be running away now, but I'll tell you one thing, it doesn't matter what rock you crawl under, it doesn't matter what cave you go in, it doesn't matter where you go, you can't go anywhere where I cannot find you. I have the determination, the resources, the connections, I will find you at some point. Here's what, this, what David is saying, can I go anywhere where you can't find me? Can I hide anywhere where you can't find me? He's not actually asking that question because that wouldn't be a surprise. No, God could find you, right? We, we know that. That's not a surprise. What he's actually saying is, can I even run? When someone's riding away on their horse and he says, you can run, but you can't hide, what's actually happening is he's saying, you may be leaving my presence now, but I will come and find you at some point. What God is actually saying through this passage is, you cannot run and you cannot hide because you can't even leave my presence. Wherever you go, I'm still there. I, I, David says, I cannot flee. I cannot run. I can't even get out of your presence for a moment. It's not a matter of hiding and God finding me. I can't even run, because you're always there. Now watch what he does this. He takes the, the poetry of this, and he shows us how thoroughly this is true. And here's what we're going to see. This idea of God being ever-present, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts and it comforts. And we're going to look at both of these things. Look what he says, verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, he's going to break this out, and I want you to see he's using this beautiful language to describe how thoroughly this is true. He says, if I ascend to heaven or if I make my bed in Sheol. Let's take the second part first. What is Sheol? She okay, you guys know, apparently. It's hell. Okay, I don't need to just skip this part of the sermon. Okay, actually, <laughs> um, Sheol is, in the Hebrew, it's more specifically, it's a little broader than our idea of hell. It's meaning, it's more closely like the place of the dead or they would actually think of it in terms of geographically the underworld, okay? So he's, he's talking about the place of the dead. It, the closest for us would be this idea of hell. But he's talking about this in metaphoric language. He says, if I make my bed in Sheol, or in the, in the place of the dead, the place of darkness. Now you've heard that English idiom of you've made your bed, now sleep in it. Similar meaning in the Hebrew, you're making your bed in Sheol. You're choosing to set up camp there. You're choosing to dwell there. You're choosing that's where you're going to make your life. He says, if I make my bed in Sheol, but then he says, but if I ascend to heaven as well. 
So I want you to see he's picking these extremities. I could be ascending to heaven or I could be making my bed in the depths. The point here is more, I want you to think of, of the distance between and how these are poles. Sheol is the place of death. Heaven is the place of life. Sheol is the place of darkness. Heaven is the place of light. Sheol is the place of evil. Heaven is the place of goodness. Sheol is the place of destruction. Heaven is, is a place of, of rising. So even think like literally in our lives, you may be having a meteoric rise or a catastrophic fall. You see these poles? He's saying everywhere, both of those poles and everywhere in between, if I go in either direction, you're there. Now look at this next metaphor, and I think this is one of the most beautiful parts of the whole psalm. He says, if I rise on the wings of the morning. Did you, did you remember that phrase? If I rise on the wings of the morning, or wings of the dawn, it says in some translations. I, I want you to think about the dawn, the morning. I want you to, to imagine you decided to go see the sunrise. Okay, you live down here in South Florida. You want to go see the sunrise. What do you do? You get up early in the morning, really, really early in the morning, which is why most of us don't do it. Get up early in the morning. You get in your car. You drive east to the beach. You get out. You get your blanket. You've got your thermos of coffee. You lay that down, okay? And you sit there, and you just wait. And all of a sudden, the sky turns from this deep black to kind of this midnight blue, and then it's kind of grayish, and all of a sudden you're seeing different hues. Just you, you can't actually see it change, but at the same time you're seeing it change. And there's these hues of all different colors, the bright, fiery pastels shooting across the sky. And if it's a particularly cloudy day, you're even seeing rays of light go across the sky, and then all of a sudden this fiery ridge right uh, on the horizon. It looks like it's coming out from the, the dark ocean comes the sun. And it's, it's slowly coming over the horizon, and it's almost like it's taking flight from the ocean, even poetically if you think about it. He's saying, if I go, this beautiful, glorious kind of illustration, if I take off on the wings of dawn, those rays of light that are shooting from the ground in the, in the east as the sun is rising, if I rise with those, or if I settle on the far side of the sea. Now, you live, if you live down here, you're looking out in the ocean, and you look straight out into the far reaches of the ocean, you're looking east. If you lived on the other side, if you lived in Naples or Fort Myers and you look out into the ocean, you're looking west. Now put yourself geographically where this psalm writer is in the world. He's in Israel. So the ocean that he goes to, the sea he goes to is the Mediterranean. And when he goes to the shore, he's facing west. So in his mind, the far reaches of the ocean is the far, far west. Now put yourself in the place in history, they don't know what's out there. It's mysterious. It's, it's scary. It's dark and chaotic. The idea of just sailing due west, in their minds, you're sailing into some great chaotic mystery. Now look at these poles that he's just painted for you. I could rise with the dawn in the far east, or I could settle in the far west. Or, or, or take a step further, I could rise with this bright, glorious sunrise, or I could go to the chaotic, dark, scary, mysterious edge of the ocean. And I want you to see, he's giving you this 3D, 
multi-dimensional picture and essentially communicating this one thing. I, he's saying, I am never, never outside of your presence. There's nothing I could do to get me outside of your presence, God. And what he specifically says, and this is important, he says, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold me. In other words, and that word is like to take hold of, to grab, to grasp. You will hold me. Here's what he's saying. You're not just present, like watchful. You're hands on. Do you see that? Your right hand is leading, your hand is leading me, your right hand is holding me. He says, you are hands-on. It's not the situation where there's a God, a creator, who like winds up the world, lets it go, the universe. He's just winding up and just watching. He's not present in that sense. He's hands-on. Now he's going to change his tune a little bit here. Look at how he goes further. I want you to look at verse 11. We're going to finish up this section. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. The first part, the subject was him. Can I go anywhere to change the fact that I'm in your presence? Can I do anything? He's the actor in, in, the, in the scenarios, and the answer is no. Then he says this, he changed it, the actor in this is the darkness overcoming me. Are there any circumstances, are there any situations where darkness is coming upon me, hiding me? And he says, no. He says, you see through the dark, but notice specifically what he says. He doesn't say, hey, it, you see better than I do in the dark. He doesn't say, you have like divine night vision and you see like these green outlines in the dark. He says, you see in the dark like it was light. You see perfectly through it. He says, there's no situation that you're not there with me. Okay, we're looking at this in, in like kind of a micro level with David as he's talking about this and this applies to each of our lives. But let's zoom out for a second, go to a macro level. What is the truth about God teaching us? Like, like let's, let's unpack, unpack this, this, let's zoom, zoom out, out on a macro level. level. He's, he's teaching, teaching us this truth that God is ever-present, ever or what we would say strictly in a theological term, his omnipresence. Now, I want you to be able to sound really smart with your friends, okay? So I want you to say this word, omnipresence, with me, okay? Can you do this? You feel like you can do that? Let's say it together. One, two, three. Omnipresence. You guys sound so smart. You look like theologians, okay? This omnipresence, there are certain attributes of God that are particularly like mind-numbing. There are these boundless attributes of God, and they're kind of lumped together, and they all share the same prefix, Omni, O-M-N-I. They share that prefix. That prefix in the Latin means all or whole. Last week we talked about God is all-knowing. We talked about his omniscience. This week what this is teaching us is that he's ever-present, so we say omnipresence. 
this, this, this truth is saying that God's presence is everywhere. Now, I want to break this apart for a second. Before we dig back into our lives, I want to just stay up on this level and splice this apart from another common theory about God that this is not saying. There's an idea out there about God, maybe you've heard this before, that goes like this. Man, God is everywhere. He's in everything and through everything. There's a piece of God in everything. There's a little piece of God in the tree, in the flowers, in the rock, you, in the cat, in me. There's a piece of God in everything. That theory, which is held by many, is called pantheism. Everything is a piece of God. But this is not teaching us that. This is teaching us differently than that. It's saying there's a difference between the creator and the created. We reflect who God is, but that's not the same thing as us being God painter, and they paint on a canvas, would you learn something about that painter by how they painted? Probably. But if you walked up to that painter and you lit it on fire, a piece, an actual tangible piece of that painter is not going up in smoke. There's a difference between saying God is everywhere and saying God is everything. God is distinct from his creation but he is everywhere. Here's how it's put in another place in the Bible. I want to just read this to you because it's really powerful. Jeremiah 23, this is God talking. Here's what he says. It's up here on the screens. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I love the way he asks this question. He says, am I a God at hand, not far away? And the answer, of course, is yes. He's saying, I'm at hand. I'm right here. I'm, never, I'm not far, ever. I'm right here. This is this doctrine, his omnipresence. God is, is everywhere. He's ever present. This is the doctrine he's teaching. But I want to take a look at how is this intersecting in our lives. How does this play out in our lives? Here's what this means. It doesn't matter how you feel about the presence of God. It doesn't matter whether you're sensing the presence of God, presence of God, whether you're thinking about it. It doesn't even matter really if you believe it. We are always, you are always in the presence of God. In other words, when you leave here today, when you get in your car, you are just as much in the presence of God as you're driving away than when you're in here and you're singing a song and you're really feeling the presence of God. But there's something that we tend to do where we tend in just this part of our life when it comes to the spiritual side, maybe it's because when it comes to God, we can't see God physically we tend to think it's okay to create our own reality. But in every other category of our life, we know that that's pretty much the definition of insanity. Let me give you an example of one time that I, I, um, I had an experience with that. This was many years ago when our church was still meeting uh, in a cafeteria. This was a long time ago. And I remember there's after the service one day, there's a, a, a guy looked well-dressed. He's kind of waiting to speak with me. And I walk up afterwards and I um, say, hey, how you doing? And and um, he says, uh, oh, I'm fine. I just wanted to ask you something. Um, next Sunday, I'd like to share some things with the congregation. Oh, okay. Um, I have some follow-up questions. I said, well, you know, we really don't do that. Are you a part of a, a church around here? He says, 
oh, I'm a part of every church. Okay, this is not sounding really good. And he says, yeah, um, God tells me things directly, and I just write them down, and I have some things that I'd like to share. And I say, look, man, I, I don't, I, I don't want to offend you or anything, but that's just really not how we operate, so that, that's probably not going to happen. And he goes, <laughs> you don't understand. I'm 400 years old. Security, can we get security over here, please, <laughs> immediately? Okay. I've never wanted to just run away from a conversation. Okay, goodbye. And just run as fast as I can. All right. It doesn't matter, like, if you want to create your own reality, you can think and believe that you're 400 years old. That's, there's something going wrong there, okay? That, that's not going to be reality, all right? I can want to believe that my favorite football team are the champions of the NFL and won the Super Bowl, I can, like, put a banner out in front of my house, okay? After the Super Bowl, I can, like, bang pots and pans in the street, paint my car. I can want to believe that. The unfortunate reality is they are not, okay? This next season they will be, but they weren't this past season, okay? I can want to believe that as much as I want. Believing something to be real that is not is the definition of insanity. But for some reason, we enter into this one sphere of spirituality, and we say everyone can create their own reality, now, here's why that is particularly absurd. Because we are creating reality about the one who actually created reality. We're choosing to say, we're saying, I can rationally come up with whatever I want about the being who invented rationality. He gave you the ability, why would I then think I can create whatever I want about him? Here's what this is saying. God is ever-present regardless of whether you're thinking about it, whether you, whether you like it, whether I, I feel it, whether I sense it, or even whether I believe it or not. That's true. When I stop thinking of God, he doesn't just unplug and shut down. He's ever-present. The best thing we can do is say, okay, let me then reorient my life to this truth and fact about God. And this particular, this one particular doctrine about God, this could be the very thing that takes your faith, your spiritual side, from being this list of religious duties that are kind of dry and stale and becoming something that's a vibrant, life-giving, active, dynamic relationship with the one who created you. This could be the very one, there are, there are some of you here, this today could be the spark that changes everything in your relationship with God. When you realize he's ever-present, let's just start with this. What, conf what is confronted? It confronts apathy. Because I could go for hours and days and weeks and years and decades and a lifetime with really not giving much thought about God. But that has no bearing on the fact that every decade and year and month and day and hour and minute and moment, I am fully and thoroughly in his presence. It confronts my apathy. David said, I can't flee from your presence. For some reason, there's something that goes on in our brain where we feel like we're the ones that throttle ourselves forward and backwards in the presence of God. We have no bearing on how much we're in his presence. It's a fact about who he is. This is a truth. It's a two-edged sword. It both cuts and comforts. Let's talk about how it cuts. Here's the first truth. 
you are not hidden. You are not hidden. I am not hidden. There's nothing that can hide us from the presence of God. So here's what that means. The best thing you can do is reorient yourself to that fact. This past week, I was uh, studying and I was in my office deep in thought and I went out of my office. I went and got a cup of coffee and I came back in my office and I, I put my coffee down, sat in my chair and rolled up underneath uh, my desk and I was about to start typing and I felt a hand grip my ankle. And I screamed. <laughs> I'm not proud of the scream that came out. Let's, not, let's just say it was not a manly war cry. Okay, we'll just leave it at that. But Pastor Dan thought it was a good idea to hide under my desk and terrify me. Now, here's a couple things you need to know. First of all, Dan and I are no longer friends. <laughs> Second of all, I don't know if you've ever had this experience happen, but have you ever, like, walked into, like, the break room at work and you're getting your coffee and you're there for a couple minutes and you turn around and there was someone sitting back there in the corner the whole time and immediately your mind does something? You start retracing the last three minutes, saying, what did I say? Was I mumbling to myself again? Was I singing a song? Okay, like what just happened that this person witnessed? Okay, you've had that experience before? Okay, square up to this reality. You are not hidden. Roll that back through your, your life and realize this truth and ask yourself this question. God, how long were you standing there? Play that out in your week. This upcoming week, let's play that out together. You're going to leave here and you're going to go home and you're going to spend time with your family and you're going to choose how you spend your evening and then you're, you're, you're going to go to bed that night. And by the way, even when you're unconscious in your bed, even when you're unconscious, he's still there in that moment. And you're going to get up and you're going to go to work. And then you're going to arrive at work and you're going to have what, how you get ready in the morning and what websites you go on and what emails you respond to and how you respond and how you talk to people and the, and the ways that you set things up and the deals that you make and the way you handle people. And you're going to come home and the way then you handle your, your family or the way you handle your friends or, or however you do, how, what you spend your leisure time doing, all of it, like reorient yourself that you are fully, thoroughly, every moment, no matter what it is that you're doing, not hidden before God. You are always in his presence. You and I have no ability to throttle God's presence forward or backwards. We are always fully in his presence. The best thing you could do is to let that loose in your life because here's what that will do. If there are hidden sins in your life, Things that you're doing that you, know, that you know God is not happy with, that you know breaks the commands of God, if there are hidden sins and especially if they've gotten a hold of your life, the more you can hold on to his omnipresence, the fact that he's ever present, the more you will, you will erode the power that that hidden sin has on you. Because it is far less enticing to go back to that hidden secret sin when you know that you are not hidden and are not in secret. And if you can stay in that place, the presence of God, you will feel how this doctrine cuts, but make sure you understand how it cuts because you might be saying, I don't like that thought because this hidden sin is something I enjoy. I don't want to get rid of this. This is my friend. This, is, this brings comfort into my life. This is my go-to thing. And you say, I don't want this to cut that away, but understand the way that it's cutting 
It's not chopping and lopping something off. It's not the cut of a, of, a, of a sword that's trying to do damage. It's more like the cut of a surgeon's knife. It's not cutting off a friend. It's cutting out cancer. Because whatever that hidden piece of your life that you're trying to keep in the darkness is going to be destroying you. So this doctrine, it cuts and it comforts. The way it cuts is not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. Hold on to this truth and let it cut. But there's another way that this doctrine works because God's ever-presence does not simply mean he's like the divine hall monitor that's always looking over your shoulder. He is, it says, you are leading me and holding fast to me. He's walking with you. He's not hands off. He's guiding you, and he is that constant companion. And if you can let this idea, just let it take root in your soul, this might be the thing that transforms your relationship with God more than any other. You know, it is a good idea for each person to have a, 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 a part of their life set aside where they every day, at least once a day, it's a good idea that every follower of, of Christ, every Christian has a time of their day that they set apart, that they remove all distractions. It's not a time where they're multitasking. Their whole self, mind, body, and soul is plugged in in a relationship and having community with God. You're connecting with God. You can do all kinds of things. You can listen to worship music and sing or listen to the music and meditate on it. You can read the Bible, read good biblical books about the Bible. You can pray, you can journal, you can pray out loud as you're walking. There's all kinds of ways you connect with God. Hopefully that's a part of your life. But what this is saying is don't let it end there. Let it extend into every moment of your life. Because you are constantly in his presence, staying in his presence. So in every conversation you have, you can be having a conversation with God. Every split-second decision you have, you can actually be praying and asking, God, please help me here. God, give me wisdom in this moment. You can ask God for help. You're constantly walking with him. There's no scenario you're walking in any part of your day that you don't have a constant companion walking there with you. In fact, I heard someone describe it like this. They said they wake up in the morning and they start their day by saying, Lord, and they start into a prayer, and then they say they don't say amen until they put their head back on the pillow and fall asleep that night. See, you can enter into a dimension of your life where you're walking with God. He's constantly present, and you're in ceaseless prayer. You're constantly throughout the day interacting with God, and you will find a dynamic in your relationship with God that you may have never experienced before. Because how does God ask us to handle him? He says we should approach him like a child. This past week, Rebecca and I took our kids to the park, and uh, there's a... Um, a you know, like a whole swing set and all this slides and stairs and everything like that and sand on the bottom. And we, uh, my daughter is, um, she's the oldest, she's almost four. My son, Nehemiah, just turned two. And we've just gotten to that place where they can handle uh, climbing on, you know, at the park all by themselves and we can just sit down on the bench and watch them play, which is a magical transition, by the way. And so I'm watching uh, Nehemiah, and he's walking up these stairs, and I'm watching him, like, like, trying really hard to do it, and he doesn't even know I'm watching, but he gets to the top, and he goes, I did it, you know, kind of to himself. He's all proud of himself. And I'm just sit sitting back there thinking, like, wow, my son, he's growing into a man. 
I'm going to be sending him off to college soon, you know. He's so independent. I'm way over here. He's up there climbing. And about two seconds, he goes kind of back down and around the corner. And two seconds later, this woman comes from the other side and says, uh, your son, he's eating sand. And my little bubble of independence just bursts. And I run over, you know, he's consuming sand. Okay, if you think about engaging God, he says, engage me like a child. The younger you go when you think of what type of child you should engage God in, the better. Because the trajectory with God is not becoming more independent, but becoming more dependent. Because if you think, yeah, I, I want to engage God and be dependent on him like a nine-year-old, try like a two-year-old, where you literally can't do anything without him. He's holding your hand constantly. You don't cross the street without holding his hand. I'm talking literally. Like try like actually running through what a toddler needs and then thinking about yourself needing that from God. You don't get food by yourself, for yourself. You, you don't go anywhere by yourself. You can't open and close doors by yourself. You, you need constant approval. Now, now take that and let's run it even younger because imagine yourself like a newborn. That would actually be better. Because a newborn, they can't even pick their heads off the pillow on their own. And imagine tomorrow you're laying there in bed and before you open your eyes and pick your head up off the pillow, you say, God, you are holding my molecules together. You are causing me to wake up this morning and giving me the ability to pick my head up off the pillow. The more you can depend on God, the more you can walk with him constantly in his presence, asking for his continual help and companionship the more you are unleashing this dynamic of a powerful relationship with your creator. See, we're not hidden. That's one side, and that cuts. But you're also not alone, and that comforts. But there's one more group I want to speak to, and you may be here, and you may be saying, look, I hear you what you're saying about omnipresence, but... Honestly, it's that attribute of God that he's always present. That's why I don't believe in God. Because if that's true, and it's supposedly true, there was a really dark season of my life, and I, and I did not sense him there. And if he was there, how could he have let me walk through that season? And so it's because I feel abandoned by God that I, I don't believe in him. And if that's where you're at, let me just first say, you, you're asking questions in, in total respect for your life experience. There, I, I couldn't even pretend to answer those questions, nor could anyone. There's only one person that can answer those questions, and that's God. But let me just humbly respond to that, if possible. If you're feeling that anger, let me ask you, if you don't believe in God, who are you angry at? Because just for the sake of having an honest moment, probably what's happening in your experience is not that you're not believing in God, it's that you do believe in him and you're angry. And so you're trying to hurt him by rejecting him. And here's what I would I would suggest 
The only place you can get answers to those, those questions can torment you for the rest of your life. Or you could take the risk and pose those questions to the only one that can answer them. You may feel like you're running, but he's right there. Now you say, why in the world would I, why would I trust him to ask you those questions? Here's why. Because whether or not it feels like this is true, this is true. And whether or not your circumstances make this feel like it's true, this is true. He loves you more than you could possibly fathom. And here's how he demonstrated it. Even though we are so far from God, he came, he entered into this world. He was, Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He died on the cross. And as he was suffering, he asked a question of God. And it's a question that is truly only accurate coming from him in that moment. He looked up to heaven and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And while we may feel like we want to ask that question, what the Bible's telling us is even though it feels like he's not there, he is. But in that moment, Jesus experienced a horror that no human has ever experienced. Literally the presence of God left him. The one that holds all life together, the one that is the source of all life and beauty and glory and holds the molecules together was ripped away and he actually experienced the hell of being outside literally the presence of God. And Jesus is saying, look, I know you don't understand. I know that you're suffering and I'm here with you walking through this and weeping and hurting with you because I love you. But he says, but I took the cross so that you would never be forsaken by God. That's how much I love you. And can I just suggest taking the risk and accepting that God loves you and accepting that Jesus died to forgive you and make an about face and realize that God has been standing there the whole time and asking your questions because you're standing on that foundation that, he's, that he loves you. Are you maybe at that line where you're saying, I just don't know if I can do that? Or maybe you're at this line saying, look, okay, I'll take that first step. And if that's the line you're at, I want to just lead you in taking that first step. You can take that first step by just simply offering a prayer to God. And I want to lead you in that. Would you all just bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's the step that you want to take, then I just want you to simply pray this right there. Wherever you're at, Whatever experiences that you're at, if you're wanting to take that step, just in your heart, say these words. Make these words your words to God. Say, God, I feel like I'm far from you, but what actual reality is is that you're right here with me right now. And I, I believe that. I choose to believe that. And I believe that you love me. And I believe that, Jesus, you suffered and died for me. And all of that is so that I could spend eternity in heaven when I die. Because you love me. And I accept that. Thank you for forgiving me and receiving me back even though I'm running. And I ask that you help me sort through these questions that I have. But I want to be on this journey with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. 
For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.